in a time where there is only one podcast. That's The Film File, the film show for film geeks by Film Geeks. Hello, I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And this is The Film File, the film show for film geeks by Film Geeks. And we are back for another fun-filled, action-packed, comment-filled, pun-related podcast. Is there any other, anything else I can add into that list, Andy? Well, you could hand in your resignation because it's been at least 45 days. Well, I am planning to resign <laughs> uh, at the beginning of the show. But by the end of the show, I will reinstate my resignation. I will come back. Uh, I'll be voted for by the general public and be back as the co-host of The Film File. So now please accept my resignation from The Film File. Consider it accepted. And now I'm back as The Film File's Welcome co-host, <laughs> as I've been reinstated and it's been a public vote and nobody cares. What a week, eh, Andy? For the international audience out there, um, yes, we are talking about Liz Truss. Yes, we're not a pol- politics show. We say this quite often, but come on. This has, been, this has been an interesting week in UK politics. Another interesting week in UK politics. And there's kind of a cinema link because, you know, films at the moment at the cinema stay on there for 45 days and then go to home and Liz Truss is doing exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and uh, the lettuce won. Which is also the other, the, the lettuce and the tofu one. <laughs> Again, if you don't know what we're talking about, do a search for Liz Truss lettuce and you will find that one of the national papers decided to see whether a lettuce would last longer than Liz Truss in office. And it did. The lettuce one. Yeah, what, an, what a world that we are currently living in. And I say that with uh, a smirk on my face and, and the weight of the world on my shoulders at the same time. It's just... <laughs> You couldn't make it up. And um, and if you tried, you'd be laughed out of your pitch meeting because it is just it's just crazy. And it's really interesting that they've actually made an interactive season of the thick of it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's yeah, as I said, you, who, who would have written this? <laughs> Uh, you know, it's like Veep, the thick of it, uh, Yes Minister, all rolled into one. And then uh, you, you wouldn't even believe in spoof anymore. It also, what really annoys me though, Andy, is, is we're in the middle of a whole bunch of, of, of crises where yep. uh, heating bills are about to rise and uh, mortgages are looking unstable and uh, the British pounds all over the place. And we're in the midst of another party election and you think, there are more important matters for everyday folks, whether you're a political bod or not, whether if you are uh, left or right of the political spectrums, this is, this is just taking the eye off the ball of everything that is important in the world right now. And it, it's it's wearing me down, Andy. It's wearing yeah. me down. While we've got the upcoming worries about whether in January and February we're going to be suffering power cuts across the UK. Yes, that's going to work for the show, isn't it? We saw 10 minutes of these films <laughs> which well, you know logistically we don't know how that's going to play out I've, I've seen the charts that the government's put out of the different levels and time periods and are they little what... clown faces is that it's how it. they've done the chart i mean it might as well be it would be it would make as much sense three clown faces and a skull means that you are imminent for a power uh, outage if it's just one clown face and a skull it's it's happening right now but you can't check your computer. What what it all works on like what lettering band your your property is in as to what times a day your power cuts take place. Now, my 
whole bewilderment around this is what if the place that I work is in a different lettering band than what I am? Do, can I go to work with a power cut in my house if I can't get out my house because there's nothing, no lights on the road, no lights in the streets to get to work, to then be sent home because work is shut down later in the day? It's going to be absolutely a logistical nightmare. Well, uh, what, do you remember uh, you're, you're far too young. You're a, a whippersnapper compared to, I'm to a myself. Child and, so a I'm, child of the 70s. I'm a, I'm a re- result of the power cuts at the start <laughs> of 70s. Well, I remember the <laughs> power cuts over christmas i was only only a wee bairn as as they say and i remember the power cuts of the 70s i remember uh they showed movies because they they would uh shut down at nine o'clock and there'd be power cuts yeah and they would show movies over christmas in in two parts so you would watch <laughs> one half and then you'd come back uh the next night and watch the second half it was it was bizarre i remember you always had to uh, wait until you know the power cuts and your mom would go and tell you to get the candles rather than have the candles ready yeah. And then you try and find matches with a torch, even though you, <laughs> you knew they were coming. And you did you, um, you played an awful lot of board games to candlelight. That's that's my memory of of, of it. But we were kind of lucky as, as kids because our house was on the same grid as a hospital. So we had very, very short power cuts. They went off for uh, 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 only something like 20 minutes as opposed to other people who were out for hours. But yeah, it's it's so interesting time for the UK. Interesting in that, I mean, you've just got to laugh, otherwise you've just got to go insane. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, you know, I I did spend this last week. I I heard the news of the Liz Trust leaving as we were coming back from my trip to Banbury. We were in the car when it was all playing out on radio. And, you know, it's a great bit of entertainment to finish our 24 hours of having fun down at Banbury and sampling some of the food that the dining kitchen has been put together. Oh, way treated oh, yeah. us. Yeah, you, nice you, you told me all about it and it sounded amazing. I, oh. I heard, I was in some training and no one could could not have their phones next to them while I was doing some, some teacher training. <laughs> I mean, that's it. You, you just had to tune in. You had to listen to it and you had to listen that's to all the story politicians try the best to um, talk around how this is, uh, is what was needed. And it's like, yeah, but only like 45 days ago. You were all saying, oh, she was needed in office. Um, it does anger me as well. I mean, you've got all the initial anger that, you know, it's it's covering up all the other important news out there. But you've got the initial additional anger that she now gets a PM's retirement salary. Yeah. I, I For just 45 get... days of work, and she's going to get over 100k per year. Yeah, 150k a year just for having, uh, having failed miserably. That's the thing about politics, Andy. You always fail up. Because if you went yeah. into prison, you would write a book and then come out. Aside from that, this week I've I've spent I've spent money. I've spent a lot of money. Because um my my new PC I have ordered all my components Ooh, for sounds and interesting. they should be coming this week. So next week I'll hopefully be recording on my brand new PC. Which let's hope it all works. Yes, it's going to be beautifully gaming spec because my current computer is like ten years old. I put this together ten right. years ago. And it still plays things pretty well. I future proofed it. It it's doing a good job. But it's with the video and audio editing that it's starting to get a bit sluggish. I mean, I could shave hours out of my editing time and be processing time for this show simply with having a new PC that can handle the workload better. So that's one of the main reasons that I needed to upgrade. Also, the reason why I've not done any video stuff for the video channel for quite some time is because it takes so long for it to process stuff. And it was just too much of a chore. So hopefully I'll start getting my... um, years of my life in films videos uh, rolling out again 
uh, I think I got up to 1992. So it's uh, I'm getting up to that interesting part of my life where I was away from Liverpool and living in Sheffield and watching everything that came out. So cool. narrowing down the films to pick out from each year is going to be interesting. But Excellent. yeah, um, new PC build. So hopefully next week I will be all happy and jolly and not yeah, reactivate the camera and I just look miserable and it's like, what happened? It blew up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still need a, a new uh, MacBook and I've been talking about it since. Oh. We started recording the show. Um, <laughs> still not got around to it. Eventually, eventually. One of these. What days. kind of a show do we have for you this week? Well, in this week's show, we have, uh, of course, all the news because it's not a film file without the news. We have reviews for the Banshees of Inisherin, Black Adam. What else do we have, Andy? And also, I'll be throwing in my thoughts on Rosalind which landed last week on Disney+. And this week's deep dive is into Halloween. No, not the season, not just one film, but all the films. It's a Michael Myers love fest. Just in time for the end of the month, really, which is makes it kind of well-timed, doesn't it? So. Oh, we're always well-timed. <laughs> but before any of that, we've got the news and we've got the box office. So, box office, the big release this week, of course, was Black Adam. And we know that thundered into the US theatres with $60 million plus on its opening weekend. But is that good news for the latest DC movie? Andy, what are you telling us? So, it's pretty much all about Black Adam this week, as it's opened worldwide, taking $140 million in its first few days. In the US, it went straight in at number one with $67 million. Ticket to Paradise? took second place with 16.3 million. That's only just opened in the US. We've had it in the UK for the past month. Smile, 8.4 million, putting it into third place. Halloween Ends holds into fourth place with another 8 million added to its total. And Lyle Lyle Crocodile manages to scrape into the top five with 4.2 million. Here in the UK, Black Adam takes the top spot. 5.6 million is its total this weekend. The highest opener for a film in the UK since early July. Banshees of Inishirin, took 1.55 million. Lyle Lyle Crocodile took 1.5 million. Smile, still holding in there in fourth place with 995,000. And Halloween Ends, dropping its way down into fifth place with 703,000. Okay, that's the box office. So I'm, I'm guessing, even though they've just announced that Black Adam 2 is coming and coming fast, that we are looking at a big drop-off for Black Adam. Well, we're kind of seeing that with all superhero films over this past year, that the first week is really strong and then the second week gets the 60% drop off. This might slightly break the mould because whilst the critical response has been really bad, the public response has been quite positive. So it might carry some good word of mouth and have a smaller drop off. I'm still not convinced, but let's see. I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath on whether it's going to survive for multiple weeks. It's not got much in the way of competition, though, has it? No, that's it. I mean, it's pretty much clear season for them for the next few weeks. So they've got it all to run over, basically, up until another comic book movie comes and smashes it out of the water, which is uh, another Black. It's Black Panther. And that's tracking, from what I believe, incredibly well. Yes. Um, as we reported last week, the in the US alone, the tracking is ready to put it within the top tier of the Marvel box office openings, if not taking the top spot. We'll find out, obviously, when that releases. But can Black Adam hold over? I'm not convinced. Okay. 
Well, you're going to talk about it later. So let's move on with other news. Now, here's a bit of news that I forgot about last week. I did have it in my notes, but I completely forgot to mention it. The classic movie, Barbarella, is getting Ooh, yes. a new version. Now, this has time. been on and off for literally 20, 30 years. There's been talk of a Barbarella, not necessarily a remake, because it's originally based on a French comic, yeah. a, a slightly naughty French comic, but a, a French comic nonetheless. And it was mentioned with Drew Barrymore in the leading role at one point. Yeah. Well, it's now landed in the lap of Sidney Sweeney, who is not only going to star in it, but is also going to produce the film. Um, Sidney Sweeney, you'll know from Euphoria and The White Lotus. Uh, Sony Pictures have greenlit the film. And it's another take on the role adapted from the comics, uh, which was adapted beautifully with Jane Fonda in the lead. Yeah, uh, Roger 41st century astronaut. 1968 film, yeah. 68. Sexy satirical cult hit, which sets out to find and stop the evil scientist Durand Durand from unleashing his positronic ray. Great and name a, for a band, that, wouldn't it? Yeah, a band should really pick that one up, Durand Durand. Maybe drop the Ds at the end. That It might work a bit better. Uh, the new take currently has no writer attached or director. But with Sweeney executive producing the film and starring in it, I don't think it will go completely down the saucy sci-fi route, but it will definitely still retain the strong female empowerment aspect that everyone kind of forgets that that original film had. You always see it as like, oh, it's just a saucy space space sci-fi. No, it's very strong female empowerment throughout it. I think it has to stay true to, to the comic. I think it needs that saucy side to it because that was sort of, a key part of Barbarella's style. Um, I'm hoping that they can do that. And, uh, and, and even though they can get all the absolutely wacky, nonsensical sci-fi stuff in there and keep the humour that's in Barbarella, because there is a, 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 a strong humour that runs through both the comics and, and the movie. I, I think they need to get, go for that grown-up feel for it. I think that's what an audience would expect from Barbarella, a grown-up Barbarella doesn't have to be smutty but it, it can be it can be a little bit saucy and a little bit sexy yep uh well we'll we'll see how this develops as they start to attach directors and writers onto the project but i'm interested to see a new take yeah you could start the whole thing from barbarella starting out as an agent and then anyway yep. they don't want to hear my pitch that's for <laughs> later they might do they need a writer get on it yeah i'll do it <laughs> now moving on to marvel news and jeff snyder who gave us the teased reveals that Harrison Ford was cast as General Thunderbolt Ross, that even though it's still not been 100% confirmed, so many different sources are now reporting it from different insiders. So it's looking more and more likely. Well, he's also got another Marvel casting rumour that he's been, he's quick to mention that this has come from not one of his regular sources. So take it as the rumour more than what the verified Ford casting report is. And that is that Adam Driver, Yes, the big, hulky, beautiful man, Adam Driver, um, has had a meeting with Marvel Have you got an Adam Driver crush now? Does Ryan Reynolds know about this? Uh, Ryan Reynolds should be fine with it because Ryan's still my number one. But Adam Driver, I'm well truly swayed by his charms. Just going to interject there. I re-watched for the first time uh, Last Jedi the other day. And boy, it holds up really, really well. And it's the first time since it came out. And I think it got a lot of stick because it is almost a traditional war movie in a way yeah. that uh, some of the Star Wars subsequently and around that time weren't. This feels like a, like a war movie and, and thoroughly enjoyed it. 
I know it's got its uh, detractors. Yes, it is Canon, but yeah, I, I, had a, I had a good time. And Adam Driver is such a strong presence throughout that film. He is, and he, he's the saving factor in the like final part of the Skywalker series, uh, Rise of Skywalker. He is fantastic throughout that film, even when the rest of the film isn't. But anyway, he's been in talks with Marvel, apparently. Initially, it was rumoured that he was up for the part of Doctor Doom, but it's now hinted that he might actually be this universe's incarnation of Reed Richards. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still hope they stick with Krasinski, because I thought he... Uh, embedded the sort of now how, how Mr. Fantastic Reed Richards is 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 portrayed in in the recent Dan Slott comics, especially. So I'm yeah. I'm hoping that it will be him. I have nothing against Adam Driver. I think he would make a fantastic Doctor Doom. Yeah, I really do. I breathe some life into into Doctor Doom in a, in a in a very clever way. But as we know, Matt Shackerman is set to direct the film, which has been delayed to February 2025. So there's still a fair bit of time before Eddie production will run forwards on this various other names have also been attached to roles within fantastic four and unconfirmed pen badgley from you tom ellis from lucifer they've been speculated for various roles everything speculation and rumor at the moment so don't take it as gospel but what you, you can take as more than rumor is that after the success of werewolf by night marvel are looking at more one-shot specials and we know that there's a guardians of the galaxy christmas special coming yep. up but there's also rumour that there's one that has been insisted that it gets released before Fantastic Four, and that's Silver Surfer. Yeah, now this landed for me, uh, and according to an apparent breakdown, the special will feature uh, Norin Rad as Galactus' Herald out in the far corners of the cosmos. Uh, Rad will not be on Earth during his special presentation and will also not interact with any cosmic characters already established in the mcu yeah and adam mckay still wants to do a, a silver surfer film as well yeah this one shot if it goes ahead will purely be used to introduce the silver surfer to the mcu so they don't have to waste time on the fantastic four movie in giving some backstory they can just go straight into shiny surfer guy arrives there and it's the fact that they've said that the, this needs to come out before fantastic four really does lend credence to the whole idea that it's going to be the coming of galactus for the fantastic yeah. four movie and it's been said it with it's it's kind of sandman with a cosmic spin as yeah. its inspiration so we'll see and uh finally on the marvel news agatha coven of chaos is plans to begin production in late november with a late 2023 release date on the disney plus as we know Catherine hahn is reprising her role of Ag- as agatha harkness in well we don't know whether it's just going to be prequel, sequel, or a bit of both. We'll find out. A great anthology. It would be a great yeah. anthology series. Just saying. Marvel, if you're listening, great anthology series. You've got to, listen, you've got to get my pitch for a, a Man-Thing series uh, uh, taken seriously, <laughs> Marvel. Um, I've got a bit yes. of news. What have you got for so, us? So filming on Equalizer 3 has officially commenced. It's been shot at the moment in Italy, and it's Denzel Washington returning in his iconic role as Robert McCall. And joining Washington are Dakota Fanning, who we worked together way back when on Man Man on on Fire. Fire. Mm. Anton Fuchs is returning to Helm, the third installment. Would it be bad of me to say that I've still not watched the two Equalizer films? I like them. Um, I've heard so much. I like the second one, especially. They're just two films that have just been kind of just there on the peripheral and never really like 
settled in front of me for me to watch. I'll get round to watch them before this third it one comes out so we can actually review funny. them. I came back, I think, from a gig. It was a stupid hour in the morning and the first Equaliser film was on TV and I ended up watching it, picking it up from what, about halfway through and watching it to the end. But yeah, it holds up pretty good. I think, I think the second one is where it feels like an Equaliser film. I'll move them up my list of things to get round to watch and eventually get round to watching them. Uh, John Wick filmmaker Chad Stelsky is going to direct with foundation writer, producer Dana Jackson, an adaptation of Mark Alden's Black Samurai novels. I don't know these novels. They, they were a set of eight 1970s black exploitation books following Robert Sand, an American soldier in Japan, who learnt the ways of the most powerful martial art and became the Black Samurai. Globe-trotting adventure thrillers, power-mad millionaires. It's basically a martial arts James Bond. Sounds cool. I'm in. I am in. Stelsky doing a, a spy thriller with martial arts. What's not to love there? Um, he's going to produce alongside a variety of names, including Jason Spitz, Russell Ackerman, Alex Young, Diane Crawford, Lisa Flessig, and Andre Gaines. It's, he's currently in post-production on John Wick 4, so as soon as this is finished, he should start the ball rolling on uh, this adaptation of the novels. With there being eight novels out there, you can clearly see that they've got ideas to make this a franchise. Sounds good. I'm in. It's my kind of, uh, that, that's my kind of dojo. One thing that is my kind of dojo, and it's nothing to do with martial arts, two words that used to strike fear into the heart of me, but have now become something that makes me interested, is the words Adam, Adam and Sandler. Okay. And he's, he's re-teaming with Uncut Gems pairs Josh and Benny Safdie for a currently untitled film that is set to be set in the world of high-end card collecting. Sandler is attached to Star with the Safdies writing, directing and producing. Plan to shoot in the second quarter of 2023. Script is being finished at the moment. And this is bizarre because take it back five years, if you had said Adam Sandler to me, I basically pass out with like absolute anger. But this is another one of his dramatical works with what I consider some unique, talented directors. I loved Uncut Gems. I really loved it. It was so tense. I was on the edge all the way through it. But yeah, that'll be another production for Netflix, who are, well, Netflix are throwing all the money at whatever they can at the moment, again. Their new ad-based service is about to launch, because they've had a very good week. Yes, they have. As part of its quarter three shareholder letter announcing its quarterly results, they saw an uptick this quarter of 2.4 million subscribers. Now, they'd had two previous quarters with small losses, so it's really a good turnaround for them because a load of people will start saying, well, oh, Netflix has lost it now. Netflix is going. As a result, the, they've shot down the rumours that they were going to be moving to a weekly release strategy for all of its originals. Yeah. They've, they've in their statements, they've said, we think our bingeable release model helps drive substantial engagement, especially for newer titles. It enables viewers to lose themselves in stories they love. They haven't ruled out doing weekly drops on things that are more established or doing like the, the split result uh, release, like what they did with the recent season of Stranger Things, where we got a chunk of them and then we had to wait four yeah. weeks and then got the other chunk. And that kept the buzz going. So Netflix are back on a good spike, basically. Yeah, I mean, they never really went away. And I think we said that, you know, I think there's a lot of brand loyalty to Netflix. They, they were the first. And it's a bit like people calling vacuum cleaners hoovers. When you think yeah. of streaming, you think Netflix. Yeah. Um, Lakeith Stanfield, who I've got a lot of time for, and Omar Sy are set to star in the Harder They Fall director James Samuel's new film, The Book of Clavence for Legendary. 
Did you get round to watching The Harder They Fall? No, it was on my list. I nearly watched it the other night and, what, and I picked something else up instead and uh, can't remember what that was. Well, this new film from James Samuel, Samuel will be written, produced and directed by the guy and is going to be set in 29 AD with Stanfield in the title role. We don't know much about the plot, except that Samuel has previously indicated it's in the vein of biblical epics like the Ten Commandments and the greatest story ever told. If he can okay. infuse it with a sense of cool, a cool biblical story, I'm down for for some reason. <laughs> All right. Okay, there's a, there's a lot to unpack in that. <laughs> cool biblical stories. That's the future of cinema. Forget your superhero movies. Cool biblical stories. Over to DC. Walter Hamada has officially stepped down as the head of DC Films for Warner Brothers Discovery. I'm sure that the Zack Snyder uh, fans are, are desperately upset about that. And I know uh, I'll also be upset. I'll tell you who else will be upset. Ray Fisher. Ray Fisher, oh. who we've not heard of. I don't think he's made anything. Oh, he's making Rebel Moon. He, he's going to be gutted. Yes. Uh, Ray Fisher has popped his head out of um, the little hole that he's been sat in to start a little, like, oh, I'm glad he's gone, uh, sulky terrain again. It's like, Ray, get over yourself. Everything was investigated. Independent investigators found nothing. Nothing. As much as you want to try to say that Hamada influenced them, nothing was found by independent investigators. Anyway, Hamada's leaving came as no surprise. We said a few months ago that he'd be he was going to leave after Batgirl was cancelled and scrapped. But he agreed to stick around during the marketing for Black Adam to start the ball rolling on that. And now Black Adam's out. He's stepping aside. He's worked for the studio for 15 years and he served as president of DC Films for four years. And he marks the fifth Warner Brothers studio executive to leave since David Zaslav combined Discovery with Warner Media earlier this year. Now, there you go. There's there's the connecting tissue right there. Yes, Zaslav is basically being cleaning house and those that he hasn't got rid of himself have decided that they don't want to work alongside him. Although it is expected that Hamada might move on to another position as a producer or executive within the fold. He was reportedly offered another producing deal, but turned it down and criticised Warner Brothers' decision to scrap Batgirl. So it it's highly likely that he's going to put himself up for sale, to be honest. Mm, okay. I think there's uh, going to be stories. I don't think the DC story is far from finished right now, and I don't think Warner's story is far from finished right now. No. The future of DC for Warner's, they've got an intense desire, apparently, for Henry Cavill to come back for more iterations of Superman, uh, which has been revealed in a new feature piece in The Hollywood Reporter, which went into the future of DC. The Superman project would essentially be a Man of Steel sequel, but hopefully a lot brighter and a lot more optimistic. Uh, writers yes. are currently being sought for the project, and Christopher McQuarrie, who worked with Cavill on 2018's Mission Impossible Fallout, is at the top of the most wanted writer list. I bet. If he can, if he gets secured to write a Superman script, I am well and truly front and centre, first in the queue, watching this film. No official outreach has been made at this time, though. So McQuarrie, we have to remember, has commitments to the next two Mission Impossible films, which makes it a bit tricky to make it feasible that they'd be able to get him. Uh, the trade also confirms that Dwayne Johnson is definitely at the centre of Cavill's return. The idea of the Black Adam cameo came about early this year. However, outgoing executive Walter Hamada has nixed it as he had his own Superman plans. We know that Hamada wanted to, uh, his Tanishi Coates penned multi-decade spanning story Black Superman. That's possibly completely fallen by the wayside now. Everything is up in the air. Everything is just speculation at the moment. One thing that isn't speculation is Henry Cavill has got a future at DC. Oh, well, just to add into that, James Gunn 
is looking to make at least one more film for the DC universe. And at this moment, he's looking at something which is a bit of a mystery. We don't know what it is. We don't know if it's going to be anything to do with the Suicide Squad, which I kind of doubt. Yeah. But he's, he's planning to do something else within the DC universe. But time will tell. Booster Gold. Come on, make it Booster Gold. Come on, James Gunn. You're the kind of person who would do Booster Gold justice. We're still getting the Colin Farrell Penguin series as well. That's not being taken off the... Yeah, the the things that are linked to the recent Batman film are still expected to go ahead because that's one of the futures that DC is moving ahead with. Peacemaker season two is going ahead. So James Gunn is still involved in there. But James Gunn, like you say, is setting up at least one, maybe two new DC projects. And a script treatment for Wonder Woman 3 by Patty Jenkins is expected imminently. And a sequel to next year's The Flash film apparently has already been written. Wow, that's optimistic. Well, they've had plenty of time, Andy. Come on. <laughs> yeah, they've had, they've had a whole three films worth of time to, before this got released. That's been penned by Aquaman scribe David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick. If The Flash does well when it's released in June 23rd next year, it could go forward depending on star Ezra Miller, who this past week has pled not guilty to felony burglary charge in a Vermont court could face up to 26 years in prison if convicted of the charges. So it might need some serious recasting should it go ahead. Well, there has been a rumour, and it is just a rumour, that George McKay from 1917 is the studio's preferred choice to replace Miller in The Flash. Everything with regarding The Flash is kind of up in the air, but like we say, that second script is ready to go with. A couple of last, last bits of news to round off with. Vincent D'Onofrio, Anthony Ramos and Dane DeHaan, three good names, have all officially joined the upcoming GameStop short squeeze movie, Dumb Money for Sony Pictures. Rebecca Angelo and Lauren Shuka Bloom have penned the script, which tells the story of the fortunes won and lost overnight in the David versus Goliath GameStop short squeeze that occurred last year. This was when a loosely affiliated group of private investors and internet trolls on a subreddit took down one of the biggest hedge funds on Wall Street, firing the first shot in a revolution that threatened to upend the whole establishment. When we've last spoke about this, we says we we don't understand how Wall Street works, but we can't wait to see another big short kind of film that takes a little bit of a satirical approach to the events and almost makes it clear for us. I'm up for it. The rest of the cast who are already on board with this is... A strong enough cast with Sebastian, Sebastian Stan, Seth Rogen, Shailene Woodley, Pete Davidson and Paul Dano. Directed by Craig Gillespie, this is going to be an interesting film to watch. Whether you can understand it is going to be another matter. <laughs> and the last bit of news that I've got is that, remember when we spoke about the two Three Musketeers films, D'Artagnan yep. and Milady? Well, there's going to be spin-offs. Okay, already. They're not even out yet. Yep. The films haven't even made it, and, and Disney Plus have already agreed to spin off two TV seasons. Uh, both projects, titled Milady Origins and Black Musketeer, are currently in advanced development and will spin off from next year's two-part film saga. Alexandre de la Patelleri and Matthew Delaporte penned films based on the Dumas novel will act as showrunners on both series. Shot entirely on location in France with a global budget of 80 million, the films are going to be released in April and December next year, while the series will follow soon after. Specific budgets, casting information and production release windows for the shows have not been specified. But as we said last time when we spoke about this, I've got a lifelong love of the Musketeers stories. I've liked pretty much every incarnation yeah, of the Musketeers on film, including, well... Of course, I enjoyed well, Paul W.S. Anderson's version. Um, I, I it enjoyed was just it crazy immensely. Though, wasn't it? 
it was it was crazy bonkers steampunk musketeers with his trademarked laser beam corridor done with bow and arrows which i just thought was genius but i'm easily pleased <laughs> but the cast for the films includes names such as eva green playing Milady, louis garrell as king louis vicky cripps as queen anne oh great casting vincent cassell the great vincent cassell as athos pio marmai as porthos roman duras as aramis francois Seville as d'artagnan and jacob fortune lloyd as buckingham amber and the more musketeers action that we can get the better okie dokie is that it for the news and that is the news you're listening to the film file the film show for film geeks by film geeks and if you're not a member if you've not subscribed then we suggest you do so head over to your favorite podcast platform hit the subscription button and hey go on leave a like but you want to know more about the film file of course you do all you have to do is this. Head on over to Twitter and follow us at Filmfile UK. Search for us on other social media platforms, Filmfile UK. Once I get this new computer built, I will be more active on all of them. Or get directly in touch with us. Send us a message. Drop us an email. Podcast at Filmfile.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're getting close to the end of the year. What Christmas movies are your picks that you go back to every year what do you think that we should explore and talk about in december that's what we're looking for at the moment we're putting our own heads together but if you've got any films that you feel that we need to check out get them sent over by by email and we'll check them out for you and we'll give you a little name drop on the show as well so 20 to thirty thousand listeners don't forget 20 to thirty thousand people will hear your opinions podcast at filmfile.uk you can also join us on the radio for the film file radio show and that's on nobarriersradio.com every Thursday at 8 o'clock. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive, where we deep dive a film of our choice. However, this week, we're going to deep dive not just one film, not just two films, not even a trilogy. We're going to deep dive the whole damned series. In time for Halloween, we're going to be looking at the Halloween franchise. Halloween. Newsweek magazine calls it a superb exercise in the art of suspense, the most frightening flick in years. Halloween, the Chicago Sun-Times says it's so scary, I would compare it to Psycho. It's the kind of picture, says the Chicago Tribune, that forces you to sleep with the lights on. A masterpiece, says New York's New Times. Halloween, from Compass International, rated R. It all began back in 1978 when John Carpenter and Deborah Hill brought us the first of the Halloween films. For those who don't know, this is an American slasher franchise that consists now of 13 films, as well as comics, video games, merch, novels, and the primary focus in all of the films, bar one, is on Michael Myers, as a, he who was committed to a sanitarium as a child for the murder of his sister, Judith Miles, and 15 years later escapes to stalk and kill the people of Haddonfield, Illinois. Michael's killings occur on the holiday of Halloween, in which all of the films primarily take place. As I said, the original came out in 1978, written and directed by John Carpenter alongside Deborah Hill. And then that was followed by Halloween 2, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. And then Carpenter kind of drops out then, and we enter into new territory. Rob Zombie's had a go. David Gordon Green's recently had a go. But why does the Halloween franchise keep resurrecting itself andy a fan i mean you've done the lord's work and basically watched them all 
over the last few weeks. And I'll be honest, I was kind of out by uh, Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, even though I did drop in for H2O and I did drop back in for the first of the new Halloween franchise. So why do you think it's endured? as well as it has. It's an interesting one, the Halloween franchise, because there's no consistency across the series. You know, you've seen, we've all seen the charts online now telling you of the multiple different timelines for Halloween. This is a multiverse of different threaded stories because, you know, you've got Laurie Strode has died a couple of times on the franchise, but still comes back. Michael has died a few times, but still comes back. The story has taken so many different paths. And I think that's one of the charms of it. Because now you've got to a stage that no matter how bad you find the most recent Halloween film, you just hope that five years from now they'll reboot it, ignore everything that happened before, and pick it up from a story that you did like. If we go back to the first two films, the first two films sit quite nicely together. You can tell that Deborah Hill was still on board producing and John Carpenter was still kind of behind the scenes on Halloween 2. Not an essential film, but it picks up the events at the end of the first film. But that first film had such huge impact. It started the ball rolling on the whole slasher genres. You could theoretically say that Psycho was an earlier slasher and there have been other films, but this was the one that set up this whole person wearing a mask, silent stalker, killing usually teenagers who've had sex. This laid down all the foundation. And because of that, because this was that original series of films, I think that's why it holds a special place in someone's heart, everyone's heart, even though... All of us who are fans of the series acknowledge that it's a bit of a shaky ride to sit through the whole lot. Now, the original film, which came out in 1978, uh, co-written and directed by Carpenter, uh, and tells the story and sets the scene for Michael Myers, uh, sets up the idea, as you said, of, of killing babysitters in that particular film and stalking in particular Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who is the only other consistent-ish thread throughout most of the incarnations. It's now quite quaint, uh, still creepy, but it's very bloodless by comparison to how the rest of the franchise turned out. But why this works is, A, it it was the first film to do it and still feels has that fresh quality. And Michael is, is suitably creepy in that film. But Carpenter just takes his time to develop tension. He doesn't yeah. rush the entire film. Yet Michael only has about nine minutes, ten minutes of screen presence in that first film. But his presence is felt all the way through. And that's what makes it an impact. It's another one of those classic horror icons. I mean, the Hellraiser films did it as well. The Cenobites are only on screen for about five minutes, but you feel that they're on screen a lot longer because their foreboding menace is always in the background. And that first film set it off so well that obviously when the sequel got greenlit, they just wanted to pick it up and go with it from there onwards. Even though the original concept for the Halloween franchise was for it to be standalone movies. It was supposed to be an anthology franchise. Okay, so we got Halloween 2, which picks up uh, where the events of Halloween left off. And as Michael follows Laurie to a local hospital, uh, kills everyone who comes between them. And the story reveals that Laurie, uh, spoiler, but it did come out in 1981. Laurie is Michael's sister. Uh, she was given it for adoption as a, as an infant. Yeah, and that has become, even though the more recent films have said that the more just following on the story from the first film, the second film is key importance for that bit of information because that bond between them 
it then became the staple for every film that had Michael in it going forwards. Even if we ju- we'll ju- we'll jump back to season of the witch in a minute because I just want to talk about what I consider the original branching storyline of the Halloween franchise. You jump ahead to episodes four, five, and six, which saw the return of Michael Myers and also introduced Laurie's daughter Jamie played yeah. by the very young Dan- Danielle Harris, who was magnificent in that fourth film. The fourth film is well worth checking out as far as I'm concerned because it it kind of got it back to the ground roots style of it. And it has a unique ending that kind of should have finished the franchise there because it brought it full circle. Spoiler alert for people who uh, haven't seen a film that's a few decades old. But uh, Jamie, in the final scene, it's suggested that whilst dressed in a clown costume, she has just stabbed her foster mother in a scene that echoes that opening scene of the very first film. And it's a brilliant little bit of like familial bonds and the passing down of the menace will continue going on. However, they then picked it up for a fifth and sixth film and introduced a cult, the Cult of Thorn, I believe it was called, who worshipped Michael and saw him as some like entity demonic presence. And he brought some supernatural elements into And that's where it all goes a little weird on the fifth and sixth films, because there's themes such as mob mentality in the town, which we've seen in more recent films, which are brought into it. We get Paul Rudd popping up, which is a bit of a surprise when I rewatched it and saw that. But you get one film, which is the fifth film, which has Dr. Loomis yelling at a child, Jamie, played by Daniel Harris, for pretty much the whole film. He yells at her constantly and it's completely like that's not the Dr. Loomis character because they've introduced this whole idea that Jamie now has a psychic link with Michael. And then you get to the sixth film and now Jamie and Michael had had a child and that child becomes the focus. And that's the point where I check out. That's the point where it's like, whoa, you're just going to skirt over the incestual relationship going on here? Sixth film, skip. But then they came back for H2O and H2O kind of went, let's forget that four, five and six. And let's just pick up from the second film and bring it 20 years later. Yeah, so that picks up from Halloween 2, forgets everything that happened in 4, 5 and 6. We'll we'll come back to Halloween 3 because we need to spend a bit of time on that. So H2O I thought was marvellous. I thought what a great way of bringing back uh, Michael Myers, bringing back the threat, doing something new with it, bringing back Laurie Strode who faked her own death so that she could go into hiding from her brother. Uh, she's now working as a, a headmistress at a private school under the name of Kerry Tate. She continues to live in fear of Michael's return. And her son, John, played by Josh Hartner, attends school where uh, she teaches. And this was kind of um, the aliens, I think, of the uh, Halloween series. We saw that she's been living in fear, but she has to take the responsibility. This film didn't need a sequel. This film was complete. It came on the back of the Scream franchise. It had a a strong cast. It had a strong style. Uh, I think Halloween H2O, 20 years later, is the perfect sequel to uh, Halloween 2. Yeah, I mean, director Steve Miner had cut his teeth on films such as Friday the 13th Part 2 and Part 3, House, Warlock. And then, you know, when he got Halloween H2O, he was a solid pair of hands to approach this genre and really do it justice. And it does it great justice. That final confrontation aspect between Laurie and Michael plays out marvellously. Like you said, they'll say it came out around about the time of Scream and all that, and it did the same kind of tongue-in-cheek approach at times, but always kept it menacing. 
And the final resolution at the end of it, yes, even though when it happened, I went, well, if you want to make a sequel, all they have to do is this. And funnily enough, they did exactly what I speculated when it came out. It didn't need a sequel. It would have been a great little completion. Yeah, because then we got Halloween Resurrection. Yeah, which all I'm going to say about Halloween Resurrection is that I I watched this when it first came out in 2002. Yeah, and I, I rewatched it for the first time this past month. And I've forgotten everything that happened in it already. Because the only thing that sticks in my mind is that Buster Rhymes cannot act. And whoever <laughs> put him in here was on some weird drugs. It's a mess of a film. It tries to go for the, tries to get like tap into the big brother-esque aspect that they've got a house where some people are in and they're recording it. And it's just the wrong film. It feels like, it it feels like one of those retrofitted scripts that had been doing the rounds through Hollywood. And they went, oh, quick, we need a sequel to Halloween H2O. Oh, well, we've got this script that no one's wants to pick up. Right, can we force Michael Myers into it? Yeah, maybe. And that's where it all falls apart. And that basically led to five years of nothing being said about the Halloween films for good reason, because Resurrection, <laughs> quite ironic that a title of Resurrection was actually the death of the franchise. <laughs> Including, must point out at this stage, because we'll come back to this, that Laurie Strode is now committed to a mental institution after all the good work she's done in H2O and then is subsequently killed. Oft very quickly at the start of the film, which kind of undoes everything that her character had gone through. It was cheap. It was, it tried, It thought it was shocking, but it was actually disappointing. Let's now jump ahead to 2007, and then we get Halloween, a remake of the original film, not a sequel, not a prequel, not an extension of the timeline. We get uh, a film by one of our favourite directors, <laughs> Rob Zombie, a man so good at uh, shooting his Monsters film that he'll probably never work again. Uh, uh, one of the only filmmakers that I will I have ever walked out of a film by. So we get this grubby take, and, and it is grubby take on uh, the Haddonfield killer. Yeah, with, I mean, with how Resurrection had soiled the brand, yes, it kind of needed a reboot. Yes, it may be a reinvention from scratch, was a good idea on paper, but it was completely in the wrong hands. Zombie didn't just direct, he wrote it as well and produced. And stars his wife. And stars his wife. And the result is he brought his down, what I consider a downright right, grimy approach to filmmaking, setting it with trailer trash that you don't care for any of the characters. It tries to tag a backstory for poor Michael, who had a tough upbringing, uh, upbringing as the son of Trailer Trash, to make us try to emote with Michael Myers. Everyone in this cast was unlikable from the start. It's impossible to root for anyone, even the Laurie character, as much as they try to make her not be as bad as the rest of the Trailer Trash that she lives with. She's still unlikable. She's a horrible person. Everyone's abhorrent in nature so you find yourself actually just waiting for michael to kill someone else because you actually find yourself yes despite me saying what like you don't need to connect with the backstory of an evil killer you start rooting for him but for the wrong reasons you get to the second film from rob zombie though and that's when it went completely bonkers he introduced a supernatural element uh there was a a, a white horse symbolizing you know escape and freedom and you've got malcolm mcdowell who's normally brilliant in everything. And he was okay in the first Halloween film by Rob Zombie as um, the Loomis character. 
But in the second film, even he becomes entirely unlikable because all of a sudden he's brash, he's arrogant, he's on a book tour and he hates the fact that people don't want his book. And then there's a bizarre scene when they're on a chat show with Weird Al popping up as a cameo. And I was watching it just thinking, have I downed some strange <laughs> drugs that I need to need to be warned of? Because this cannot be happening. It's the most bizarre film that I've ever seen. And it's an all-round low ebb for the series. It was quickly forgotten. <laughs> it's, it's embedded in my mind. It'll never be forgotten now. <laughs> As we now jump back to a direct sequel to the original film and, again, another sequel to Halloween 2. This time we've got uh, everything that's been ignored, uh, that's gone on previously, uh, including Halloween H2O. Um, Michael was arrested in 1978, spent 40 years back in Smith's Grove Sanitarium uh, during a prison transfer on the night before Halloween. Why did they move in the night before Halloween? <laughs> Come on, people. Jinx. <laughs> Come on. Don't you know? It's his big time. It's his time of year. Michael's able to escape uh, the bus after it crashes and returns to Haddonfield for another rampage. Now, I didn't dislike this. I thought this felt... I, I don't think it needed to be a trilogy, but I quite liked this return to Halloween. It did feel like a, a, a sequel. I, I thought there were some interesting ideas going off in this. Yeah, um, I'm with you on this. I wasn't when I first watched it. When I first watched it, I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't delivering what I was expecting. And I was disappointed. But on the revisit recently, I got something from this. It's good to see Laurie again. Yes, and seeing that she'd spent 40 years preparing for Michael to come back. She'd spent 40 years ready to battle him and take him out, knowing that he would escape eventually. And the final confrontation for them, and this 2018 film, like you say, it didn't need to be a trilogy. It feels like a one-off film. It feels like a perfect closure to the Michael and Laurie story. It ends with him trapped underneath a burning building. He's dead. It's done. It's over. And it's a brilliantly played, brilliantly paced final entry in the chapter that is only three episodes long, basically. But then, clearly it wasn't going to be the end because we had a subsequent two more sequels. (laughs) Yes, Halloween Kills, which plays on the similar theme that I mentioned from episodes four, five, and six with the mob mentality hunt for Myers, showing that the town had been corrupted and, you know, the, the town was angry at things and angry at the wrong people and the wrong people get in the way. But it felt tacked on. It felt like they'd just gone, wow, that was a bit a bit more of a success than what we thought it'd be. Let's quickly churn out another one. And there doesn't seem to be as much thought gone into it. It moves a lot of the action, similar to Halloween 2 did, over to a, a hospital. And it basically fo- tries to follow the themes of Halloween 2, but doesn't tap into it. And it, it felt, I don't know, a cheap cash-in more than anything else. Yeah, because all the work had been done in Halloween, I thought. And again, this is this is apart from the original Halloween two uh, and and H two O. The stories have concluded nicely, and it just feels we as an audience feel as though we're cashing in on more Michael Myers, whether we want it or not. How the second film Halloween Kills ended set it up for a third film, which sadly, when they delivered it, they didn't pick it up at the natural point at which it seemed to be leaving off on the previous film, and it just jumped ahead four years. And all of a sudden, Laurie, who, as we've just said, spent 40 years preparing for the return of Michael Myers, within the space of four years, has now gone, 
oh, everything's rosy. He's not around. I can get back to normal life. And he's just being a grandma. And it doesn't fit. That's not the Laurie Strode character that we were introduced to just two films beforehand. Just four years in time within the universe beforehand. She suddenly settled down, even though she now knows that Michael is still out there and ready to kill at any point. And particularly with her getting ready for her to celebrate Halloween, there's something not right about Laurie Strode carving pumpkins and putting up decorations ready to celebrate Halloween. Mm. Because if anyone's not going to celebrate it, even if Michael was dead, she would still not be celebrating that time of year. It all feels, again, like a script that had been doing the rounds, that hadn't been picked up, that they retrofitted to add Michael Myers in because he becomes nothing but a background character within this film until the last half of it. I spoke in more detail about my feelings on Halloween Ends last week in the show when I reviewed it fully. But overall, it just feels like they've tarnished the image even further. They've made a worse film than Halloween Resurrection. And that's saying something. <laughs> um, let's talk very quickly about Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. It yes. came out in 1982, uh, has nothing to do with the Michael Myers character. And as you said earlier, the idea that Halloween for John Carpenter was going to be a anthology series. Yes. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. This is one that I loved when I was a child. Yeah. <laughs> I, I loved it on VHS release. I loved I was baffled at the time as to why this was called Halloween, because the only thing that it's got to do with Halloween is Halloween is on TV. In one scene of the film, it's on a background TV, the film Halloween. It's all about a corporate mask maker who are basically flooding the market with their gimmicky masks and promoting a, your, like, a big celebration that will take place at a set time on the night of Halloween when the masks will, you know... You, Basically, basically, the kids are ready for something wonderful to happen with the masks. But it turns out that the masks are designed to kill. And it's all for a mass sacrifice to appease the dark gods and awaken the dark entities. And as that plot starts to uncover, it's a chilling, it's thrilling, and it's got one of the most addictively annoying jingle theme tunes <laughs> that rattles around your head every Halloween after watching it. Uh, this was directed by a uh, close friend of Carpenter, Tommy Lee Wallace, who played uh, Michael Myers in the first film. Though originally Carpenter recruited British science fiction writer Nigel Neal because Carpenter was a big fan of his Quartermass series. Neal said his script didn't include horror for horror's sake, as the main story had to do with deception, psychological shocks rather than physical ones. Uh, and Neal asserts that the movie mogul De Laurentiis, Dino De Laurentiis, owner of the film, didn't care for it and ordered more graphic violence. And therefore, he requested that his name be removed from the credits and director Tommy Lee Wallace was then assigned to revise, the, uh, revise that script. Uh, and they went for something more along the lines of, of being Twilight Zone or Night Gallery with this idea that uh, there would be other kind of Halloween-themed movies. Yep. I'd like to see the future of the Halloween franchise to adopt this approach. I'd like to see them start to move into using the name Halloween, but doing anthology stories because Season of the Witch, it feels fresh. It was critically shredded on release, but it built up a lot more appreciation over time. And it's become one of the cult favorites. Pretty much everyone who likes anything in the Halloween franchise 
always say Halloween 3 Season of the Witch is amongst their favourites. Yeah, I love it. I've got a lot of time for it because it did do something different. I love the Silver Shamrock uh, mask, guys. Uh, I thought it was a really neat idea. Uh, and I like the idea that it doesn't fit in with the rest of the Halloween series. And I think it's uh, we invest in it in a very different way. And as you said, it's now found its recognition as being a, a cult classic. Um, the Silver Shamrock masks made a brief appearance in Halloween Kills. And apparently there was plans for the final scenes of Halloween Ends to reference the Silver Shamrock mask making company as a little like nod and wink. But they decided, mm, let's not do that. I'm glad that they didn't because I like this to just be separate. I don't want it to be linked in. Yes, a nod and a wink with a mask being there is one thing. But if they had have actually specifically referenced the company, it would have made a bit of a huge issue within the whole franchise. If you're thinking of rewatching the Halloween films or if you've never seen them before, my suggestion to you is watch the 1978 Halloween, watch Halloween 2, give Halloween 4 a shot. It's cheaper in budget, but it's it's thematically fits nicely. But pop H2O in and then watch the 2018 film. They're the main story. And then watch Halloween Season of the Witch as its own separate entity. You have to take H2O separately to Halloween 2018 because they don't exist in the same universe. But the, the, they're both well worth checking out as closers for the main story. The rest of the films, you know, uh, Curse of Michael Myers, Rob Zombie's Double Bill. Disregard from your dojo. Yeah. Halloween Kills, Halloween Ends. Just disregard from your dojo completely. You can't talk about any of the Halloween films uh, before we go and not mention the score. Uh, John Carpenter, mm. who composed the music to the first three films and then uh, came back and worked on the newest three films. That simple piano melody played in a really odd time rhythm, 5-4 time, which is which is very odd. Uh, and the synthy score is just the main identity, it's its up there with Michael Myers himself. If you want yeah. to understand what makes Halloween work, then John Carpenter's musical style is is, uh, is the way that it's, it's, it's become the identity of the films. And when it's not used, then I think that's when the films aren't at their best. And it's one thing that John Carpenter has always done well. His musical scores for his films have always helped with building the atmosphere, the tension, or the characters within. Halloween is possibly his best score. Um, I might argue the point and think Assault on Precinct 13 for me, but uh, it's it's iconic. It's an iconic piece of music yes. in the same way that the James Bond theme is, the same way the Star Wars theme is. As soon as you hear that piece of music, then you know where we are. Um, as we said, Michael's lived in many other different forms. There's been uh, novels, there's been comic books, there've been online stories. There was a, a video game, probably best forgotten because I didn't know it existed. <laughs> uh, tons and tons of uh, merchandise, uh, of course, masks. There's a silver shamrock mask that uh, you can actually pick up now. So even though Halloween ends, you can't keep a good master serial killer down. Give it five years. And we'll see another Halloween film. Uh, Andy, if we want to find the Halloween films, where can we find them? Uh, you're going to have to do some serious hunting because they were mostly on Netflix up until recently. I think H2O and um, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 are still on Netflix. The rest of them are scattered across other services. Yeah, BBC iPlayer have got the new Halloween, the yeah. 2018 Halloween. Or just rent them as a block package or go out and buy yourself there's multiple box sets out there for whatever versions of the films you want. You can well and truly pick them up 
and add them to your collection. Basically, look at it this way. If you get a box set of the Halloween franchise, you get five films worth seeing, and the others, just consider getting them for free. <laughs> I, okay, I agree with that. <laughs> we'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. Opened at the box office this week, and it's the big event movie that everyone was uh, not anticipating bothering watching, and that is DC's Black Adam. Black Adam. We're here to negotiate your peaceful surrender. I'm not peaceful. Nor do I surrender. It's his darkness that lets him do what heroes cannot. The battle you're meant to fight is upon us. There's no one on this planet that can stop me. Black Adam. Teth Adam was a slave nearly 5,000 years ago who was granted the powers of the gods, using them to free his people from the tyrannical reign of Acton. However, the mighty Teth Adam vanished after the battle, his fate unknown. Cut to the present day, and the land of Kandak is now ruled by a new tyranny, the Intergang. When an archaeologist, Adriana Thomas, is betrayed by one of her group when trying to find the mythical crown of Sabak, she utters a carved inscription and awakens Teth Adam from his slumber. As he sets about discovering this new world around him, Amanda Waller dispatches the Justice Society of America to track him down and prevent him causing destruction. Black Adam is the latest DC offering, and it has been lingering in various stages of development for over a decade. It's a passion project for Dwayne Johnson, and it's safe to say he does the role credit, with a somewhat sombre and darker edge than the usual characters that The Rock is known to play. It's just a shame that the rest of the film around him is so very average. There are good points within, however. Pierce Brosnan as Dr. Fate is a marvellous piece of casting, and makes for a compelling watch whenever he's on screen. Unfortunately, the rest of the JSA feels somewhat lacking. Aldis Hodge is unmemorable as Hawkman, Quintessa Swindle is merely okay as Cyclone, and Noah Centino might as well not bother turning up for as much of an impact he has as Asim Smasher. The action, when the team enters the fray, certainly looks good, but it's also very standard fare for superhero movies, without anything that really stands out. Running at just over two hours, the film feels like it's trying to do too much in a short time, and the result is a film that starts with a huge exposition dump, then smashes things around for a bit, before another huge exposition dump, and a final burst of smashing things around for a bit. No surprises, no originality, and in the end, a rather forgettable, albeit enjoyable at the time, film. It's a shame, really, as Johnson is clearly trying to approach the role with some love for the character, and he tries to retain that darker edge that the comic book villain slash anti-hero has, only to be let down by a story that needs him to be a good guy as much as possible. It's disposable fun, but completely unmemorable. I, you know what? I'm not drawn, Andy. And I should be. This should be right up my street. This is a uh, a comic book movie, but I'm, I'm not drawn. I wasn't that interested before when it was being mentioned that they were going to make a Black Adam film. Should have tied into Shazam all the way through. Yeah. I don't know, Andy. Uh, with what you've just said, I'm even less interested. It's not been a great superhero year. One film that has been something that we've both seen and uh, I think I can say now will probably be in our film of the year list has got to be this movie why aren't you talking to Parag no more Colin that wouldn't be a sin no would it father no but it's not very nice either from writer-director Martin McDonough 
Banshees is hilariously dark. Why does he not want to be friends with you no more? Why is he 12? Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson are one of the all-time great on-screen pairings. There's two of us in this. No, there isn't. It takes two to tango. I don't want to tango. <laughs> they danced with your dog. The Banshees of Inisherin. Yes, the Banshees of Inisherin. Uh, return to the screen of Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, directed by Martin McDonough, who gave us in Bruges. It's the film pairing that I don't think we ever thought we were going to see again, but I'm so glad that they teamed up one more time. Uh, for this story set in a small Irish island of Inishirin back in 1923, two friends, Patrick, played by Farrell, and Calm, played by Gleeson, have been friends for as long as anyone can clearly remember. But one day, as a civil war rages on mainland Ireland, Calm suddenly announces that his friendship is over. Patrick is confused. In fact, he's devastated. And while Calm starts taking incredibly drastic measures to keep the friendship closed. Yes, on the surface, Banshees of Inisherin is a dark comedy about broken friendship and regrets at paths not trodden. With Calm's reason for breaking the friendship being that he's reflected on the time that he's wasted with the boring pad. The things that he could have done instead have been weighing on his mind, such as creating music. It's clear when watching it that Colm is also going through mental anguish, severe depression, and the, sadly the community around him don't quite identify it because this film is, after all, set in the early 20th century. So it's just seen as, oh, a bit of eccentric behaviour. But it's this time setting of this film that makes it even more significant. Because not only is it set in the early 20th century, like you said, it's set in 1923, the time of the Irish Civil War, which saw bloody conflict between friends and families. Brother turned against brother, friends turned against neighbour. And the reminder of that is present within the film, which plays the sudden break of Coleman Pad's bond as a quite dark analogy of those times. There's a logic to the friendship breakdown, but it still doesn't make it make any sense just like there was a logic to why the civil war t- took place but it still didn't make much sense there's times when it looks like the pair will reconcile and the parallels with history historical events make us realize that maybe they'll never reconcile because things never got right again in the irish irish mainland banshees is dark it's very dark but man it's wickedly funny this is one of the few films where i have laughed out loud with tears in my eyes than to be replaced with tears in my eyes because of the tragedy that's going on between these two men. I can honestly say I don't think Colin Farrell has been better than he Ooh. has been in this film. And his relationship with Brendan Gleeson's calm is just, it's a, it's a chalk and cheese relationship. The former uh, Colin Farrell's Patrick is, is just a simple soul who can blab on for hours about nothing, including uh, his horse's poo. Uh, and while Brendan Gleeson's character is is a, a deep thinker, he, he wants a legacy. This is a, a film about despair and, and, and legacy and wanting to live on. He writes music, plays a fiddle. Uh, and as you said, he, he falls into, uh, into despair, existential despair at times. It's a beautiful relationship. And as, as I said, at times, unabashedly funny ridiculously funny silly even and then it's it's just uh amazingly tragic and touching we get to fall in love with a donkey <laughs> mm. um which is is Padrick's 
only other friend. Patrick is a is a as a lonely man and a simple man who sees everything in in sort of black and whites and this grey area that he has to face is, is something um is something unheard of to him. him. Yeah, it's confused, confused him, and yet um, Calm is is depressed by the sense of. Of, of time slipping away and it, and wants to do something about it, leave a creative legacy for whatever years he has left. Uh, and that's why he's decided to cut Padraig out of his life, ridding himself of, uh, he describes, aimless chatting of a limited man. There's so many themes within this and um, they're explored. Fam- familial abuse, depression, dependence, loneliness, suicide, everything that you can think would really drag a film down and make you just walk out hating it because it'd be so depressive is in there, but you don't hate it. It's so, so subtly and smartly played throughout that you can't help but walk out feeling that you've not only just had a great bunch of laughs, but also you've got a lot of things to think of and it's just hits you for a six. The casting is what makes it. I mean, you've spent, you've mentioned Gleason. And Farrell, who Farrell, like, I agree with you, he's on his finest performance of all time here. He really is the most likable character in his simple, confusing state. But the support cast around them, Barry Keegan, who pops up as Dominic, the son of the island's policeman, who initially comes across as vulgar and coarse. But through the film, it peels layers off his character to add depth to him. And you start to really care about his simple life as well. It's, it's so- beautifully, beautifully portrayed. Barry Keegan is such a talented young actor. Popped up in Eternals and, and uh, was was strong in it, but didn't really stand out. But in this, it is just a mesmeric performance. As you want to strangle him and love him at the same time, and and that's what I'm, I'm, I talk about this film. There are there's so many other grey areas. I mean, he, he dreams of escaping his brutish father who abuses him. He wants to find he wants to find love as well, and then we've got to talk about Kerry Condon, who again we've yeah. seen her in an awful lot, including Better Call Saul, and and again she's never been better than she has in this film, as yep. as uh, as Siobhan uh, Padrick's smarter sister. Yep, the the one who realizes that life on the island will never change from what it is, with people just wanting gossip, nothing really connected to reality, and she wants a better life and can't decide whether to take that opportunity to head for that better life on the mainland where, as we're reminded multiple times, civil war is breaking out and she sees that as an option from the peaceful, like slight existence on the island. It's a beautifully layered film. One of the strongest films of the year with so many layers to unpack. Poignant, disturbing, angst riddled, a tale of friendship gone wrong or something more. It's a perfect tragedy. McDonough takes a perfect tragedy and also makes a perfect comedy at the same time. And it takes some skill as a writer and director to get anywhere near the right balance there. But he does it with absolute perfection. I totally agree. So to wrap up with our reviews, you've got... I've got Rosalind that landed on Disney Plus last week, which is the tale of Romeo and Juliet told from a slightly alternate point of view, that of Romeo's ex-girlfriend. Sweet Juliet. Son of a... We just need to stop a wedding. My boyfriend is about to make the biggest mistake of his life. It's your boyfriend's wedding. Ouch. Blow me. Rosalind, rated PG-13. 
The story of Romeo and Juliet has been represented on screen so many times in a variety of ways, but this film adopts a different approach than those that came before it, as it focuses on Rosalind, who, as the film begins, is happily in love with Romeo. Until the poetry-spewing charmer spies Juliet and drops Rosalind to woo his new flame. Setting about to try to split the pair up, Rosalind also has to contend with the pressure of her family trying to find a suitor for her in this witty romantic comedy from director Karen Mayne. Caitlin Dever, who many may remember from Booksmart, plays the lead of Rosalind well. Strong-willed and ambitious, she doesn't suffer fools gladly and can be a tad abrasive with those around her. But Dever plays it in such a likeable manner that it makes it easy to care for her plight as the famous tale plays out, albeit with some twists. The comedy is mostly sharp and elicits a fair few chuckles, and the tight runtime doesn't let the tale run out of steam or charm at any point. The support cast are well placed, with a standout turn from Minnie Driver as Nurse Janet being the main highlight. As with the classic play, there are tragedies as the star-crossed lovers, both here quite vacuous and clearly well-suited in their simple-mindedness, seek love whilst their families fight with the whole affair making for a nice slice of light entertainment. So that's this week's reviews. Literally something for everyone. Uh, what can we expect, Andy, next week? A bit of a busy time at the cinemas, bizarrely enough. You've got Barbarian for a bit of horror. You've got Bros for a bit of comedy. You've got Enola Holmes 2 getting one week of limited cinema release. If a cinema near you is showing it, get it watched before it goes onto Netflix next week. And you've got two anniversary re-releases. First of all, you've got Paranorman, which celebrates 20 years. Paranorman is 20 wow, years old. that's a great old. little movie. I didn't realise it'd been out 20 years. So if your local cinema is showing that for, the, for a family treat, take your kids along and treat them to Paranorman. And then, for those of us who are a bit older, The Thing celebrates its 40th anniversary this week and has got limited re-release across the UK. On Now TV and Sky, The Lost City, it's not great. It's no, passable. It's not. No, it, it's not great. <laughs> one thing you can say about it, it's not great. Uh, that lands on Now TV and Sky, uh, as does Wolf and Red Rocket. On Netflix, this is where it gets interesting, Wendell and Wild, which is Henry Selleck's animated movie about demons trying to strike a deal with a punk rocker to escape hell. Looks good. It's, it's Henry Selleck. We do love his stop-motion work. All Quiet on the Western Front, a new adaptation of the novel, which um, explores the dark elements of World War One in the trenches. And Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Mysteries, anthology horror TV series. I'm there for that. Over on Amazon, we've got Run Sweetheart Run, supernatural horror that sees a single mother feel fear for her life when a blind date goes very dark very rapidly. So it's quite a nice week for multiple entertainment. I'm guessing, though, that's it for this week. And as ever on the film file, before we go, we give you our neat things, things that we've watched, enjoyed, a, seen it, you name it, as long as it's neat to us, we're going to tell you about it. Andy, what's your neat thing for this week? So, dropped on Disney Plus recently, and I'm now three quarters of the way through the first batch of episodes for season one, and that is a TV series called The Bear. Now, this this series, it, it has a lot of similarities to the recent film Boiling Point. It's set within that world of running a restaurant, and everything crumbling around you. Uh, it sees a young chef who comes from fine dining world, a, a Michelin-starred restaurant, who returns home to Chicago to run his family sandwich shop after his brother commits suicide. And he tries to bring all his way of doing Michelin-starred food to 
this small sandwich shop to reinvigorate the business. But he discovers that there's debts. He discovers that he's got a a crew who work there who are kind of reluctant to go along with his plans. But over time, he starts to bond with them and identify the great elements and how to work with them and get the most out of them. And it makes for sometimes amusing, sometimes stressful, and sometimes pure, nail-bitingly angst-ridden, episodic watching. Jeremy Allen White stars as Carmi, who's the lead chef. You might recognise him if you watch the US version of Shameless. He played Lip in that, and he was fabulous in Shameless, and he's absolutely perfection in the central role in this. But he's surrounded by, you know, Abby Elliott's in here, Evan Moss Backrack. But for me, it's Io Edaberry who plays Sydney, who becomes like his sous chef, who really, really works well alongside Jeremy Allen White here. She brings an energy. She's hated by some of the rest of the team who work in the kitchens, but she has to prove herself because she's a fresh, new student of, of cuisine who's been brought in and suddenly given this powerful role within that, within a sandwich shop. Brilliant entertainment, absolutely gripping. The Bear, it's on Disney Plus in the UK, well worth checking out. Yeah, I've seen good um, good reviews for it. It looks right up my street. Uh, my neat thing is you've got to be quick, because when you get this podcast, probably Wednesday, it's nearing its end. And that is, if you live in Sheffield, the off-the-shelf uh festival a festival of words uh, a festival that celebrates books words writing and ideas and it's a fantastic festival which has sadly been missing over the last couple of years in its full form due to uh, covid and um, tons and tons of events that have already taken place with a few more yet to happen if you're around on the 30th you can join mel c she of the spice girls for a a conversation piece it's great and it's aimed at everybody who's got an interesting uh, an interest in reading i partake in it every time and i do q and a's this year i'll be doing a, a q and a with martin ware uh, who talks about his book electron yours he was uh, the founder of the human league and one of the founders of heaven 17 knows everything there is to know about electronic music you can join me on the 26th of october uh, 1945 at 1945 you can join me on the 26th of october at quarter to eight in the evening for the martin ware q a and it's a fantastic fantastic festival if you've not heard of it before book ahead for next year because there will always be something that you'll find interesting if you're an avid reader like both andy and i are there is something for everyone and it's not snobby there are comics mentioned there are children's books there is literally literally something for everyone and that's the off the shelf festival of words right here in our home city of sheffield but it does finish on the 30th so come along for that weekend if you've listened to the show and talking of listening to the show well you've listened right up to the very end of things because that's it we're done andy any plans for the next week build my new pc and get it working yeah i've got a week off and then as soon as it's built Install Conan Exiles and play it at full spec. Yes, I'm still addicted to Conan Exiles and I can't wait to play it on full spec. Well, other than uh, the Off the Shelf Festival, I've got a week off and we are building to our busy time of the year. We've got gigs uh, Friday in Sheffield. If you're in the Birmingham area, we're playing Billingsley Rock Club. 
It's a fantastic venue and we always have a good time down there. And we'll see you all again next week. It's always a pleasure to do this. Couldn't do this without Andy Meekin because he is the brains behind the operation while I'm the good looks. Have a great week and remember, it's Halloween. Everyone's entitled to one good scare. Yeah, I think I, I think that's a very good analogy and uh, I think that pretty much sums it up. You um, can use that, Andy. You can use it anytime. Well, you've just used it yourself, so, you know, oh, okay. it'd, be, it'd just be copying yeah. if I carried on with that. And that is the news. The news. <laughs> Sorry, I took oh. your line at the end there. You that's, did, that's yeah. I don't know what to say next. <laughs> okay. You're listening you... to No Barriers Radio. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to go and uh, have my tea. I'll be back at the end of the show. Well, you said you were resigning, so I'm just going to do all your work for you. <laughs> <laughs> the undersecretary to the undersecretary is. Uh... <laughs> is that, am I missing something else in there? Is there any other expletives? Expletives. 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 <laughs> There's plenty of expletives every week. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, all those people who say, "Yeah, we didn't have it bad in the seventies. Yeah, no, no, we didn't." We had power cuts. We had a poor health service. We had uh, people dying of hypothermia. Yeah, it's just the same. Yeah. Maybe edit that bit out. That's, just sound like... <laughs> That's a bit, bit callous. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> the Banshees of Inner Shirin. Uh Black Adder. Black Adder. Oh, sorry, Black Adam. I mean, let's cover Black Adder. That'll be. <laughs> <laughs> what else do we have, Andy? Um, one thing that is my kind of dojo, and it's nothing to do with martial arts. Um, that I should be a t-shirt. Up. That could be our t-shirts, Andy. My kind of dojo. <laughs> my, we think we've got, dojo, we've got a catchphrase already. It's only um, taken 130 odd episodes. Is film fast um, like a diet scheme for film? Yeah, yeah. You've, once yeah. you've had it, you uh, you lose. <laughs> uh, basically, you just throw your intestines out and, uh, and you weigh absolutely nothing. So it's just basically chewing a DVD and letting the yeah. treasure inside. Yeah, thought so. <laughs> what a great diet plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just don't eat anything. And for that moment that you're alive, you'll do really, really well. I really died um, to the film okay. last night. <laughs> <laughs> Streaming food coming to your house now. You don't actually eat the food. Streaming stream blood it. from your anus, but... <laughs> <laughs> This is the end of the show. (laughs)